This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here in the Situation Room where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, we welcome you to the program here on News Radio 1440. I am your host, Caleb Colquitt. And let's go ahead and jump directly into our Alabama coronavirus update as we have done for, I guess, about a month now, which really kind of seems sort of surreal. In some ways, it feels like it hasn't really been that long, and in some ways, it feels like this is all I've ever done on my show. But we will go ahead and, and get into some of the data and arm you with the best new information from the Alabama Department of Public Health. You can see here, according to the latest numbers, that there are 6,842 new cases. There are eight, or sorry, 80,499 tests. There have been 251 people that have deceased because of COVID-19. And our hospitalization due to the Wuhan coronavirus is 945 hospitalizations statewide. So a couple things that I wanted to point out. Our hospitalizations are actually down a little bit. I'm not going to show you a graph after this one. This really all that I had to say about that because it's it's not something that's significant enough to really dwell on right now. But overall, one thing that we need to keep in mind and that we need to sort of put into perspective on this is that the main reason that we were doing this shutdown in the first place was primarily, at least this is the way that the narrative was framed originally, was primarily to stop the spread, but also to keep our healthcare facilities from being overwhelmed. And based on everything that we've seen, even in the place that has been hit hardest in the United States of America, New York City, which has been hit way harder than any other location. I mean, it's not even close. Even they said that they needed a lot more ventilators than they actually wound up needing, and they, they found out and they learned since that happened. And so even their healthcare facilities have not been overwhelmed the way that they thought they would. They actually sent away the United States military ship, the uh, I believe it was the USS Comfort, that they were using or planning to use as a temporary hospital, and even they didn't need them. And so with that being said, you can kind of understand why people are starting to say, well, we're actually way past the point. The shutdown did exactly what it was supposed to. And basically the time for the hospitals to get ready to be able to take in more patients and, and to sort of batten down the hatches for this thing has long passed now. We did exactly what it was planned to do. Some people are going to be freaked out, and I was talking about this a little bit yesterday. Some people are going to be really freaked out when people start moving, getting around, uh, whether it's the government actually ending shutdowns or people just naturally feeling like they're a little bit more secure or even people that are feeling like they're going a little bit stir-crazy getting out and about those numbers are going to rise. You're going to get more coronavirus cases. You're going to get more coronavirus deaths. That happening does not mean the shutdown was a failure. The reason that we decided, and I'm not even talking about the government shutdown. I'm talking about people in general just not getting out and about and self-quarantining, that kind of thing. I'm not making a distinction between governments that shut down and governments that, that may, mainly stayed open and let the people decide what was the right course of action because there doesn't seem to be really a correlation between one or the other. But the important thing to keep in mind here is the purpose of the shutdown was never to keep people from having coronavirus. It was to make sure that when people did the, get the coronavirus, which we kind of anticipate a 
large plurality, probably a vast majority of the population is going to get at some point that there were not going to be people turned away or not getting the care that they needed because of how insanely overwhelmed our hospitals were. Doesn't mean there can't still be problems with it. We don't know definitively whether or not it worked because the truth is we won't really know until we get out there and see exactly what's going to happen. But all indications, all the new data that has come out recently has shown basically the shutdown did its job. And everybody just deciding to stay at home and, and not go out and social distance and take precautions and all those things, that essentially has, as far as we can tell, pretty much already accomplished exactly what it was set out to do. It, it bought us plenty of time, and now we're more equipped to handle it when people start going out there. So the fact that you're going to see these numbers that we just shared with you go up in the coming days because people start moving around a little bit more, that does not mean the shutdown was a failure. We were always going to get the majority of the population infected with this thing at some point. We knew that going into it. The purpose was to keep our healthcare facilities from being overwhelmed. And, you know, maybe what happens is that that spike still happens too quickly despite the shutdown. And what we do is we wind up with, with people uh, overwhelming the system anyway. And the irony is if that happens, that doesn't seem to be what's going to happen based on data that we're getting from other countries and that kind of thing, ones that have started to open up a little bit more. We, we could still see a second wave of it. But the irony is if that happens, then that means our flattened the curve didn't work because it worked too well. In other words, we flattened the curve so much that so few people wound up getting the virus that no patients were being taken for the novel Wuhan coronavirus at the time, and that means very few people got sick, which means very few people got recovered, and so we flattened the curve so much that when we finally got out from the shut under the shutdown time, then we spike up. That's what could theoretically be the issue. I don't see that happening, but... What I'm trying to explain to you is don't panic, and, and just because you see those numbers shoot up in the coming weeks does not mean that this whole thing was for naught, because you're, you're measuring it by a gauge by which it, the, the idea behind the shutdown was never intended to be measured in the first place. All right, so that being said, let's go ahead and dig into these numbers a little bit. Let's look at the confirmed cases from the state of Alabama, again, from the Department of Public Health here in Alabama. Now, you'll notice there that, again, this chart has been relatively the same ever since it started. No big spikes, no exponential curves that we were seeing in places like Italy and China and Spain, but also a gradual and predictable increase. But one thing that you will also notice there is that relative to the past few days, you have to look close, but it looks as though there may be a flattening out when it comes to new cases. So that, of course, is a really good sign. We've seen flattening patterns in the past that turned out to not really be something that stuck. And like I said, there's a good chance that once people start moving around a little bit, these things are going to uptick at least a little bit. But my prediction right now, just going off of, of what I see and, and what I'm looking at, is that within probably about a week, we're going to start to see this uptick in cases and it's going to look not anything like the graphs that we were seeing early on where you saw that really big upward spike. It's possible, but unlikely. 
And so I think by roughly next week or so, you're going to start to see a little bit of an uptick, not because Governor Ivey rolled back the uh, rolled back the shutdown, which we actually talked about does very little effectively yesterday, but because people are going to see that as a signal that they can be out and about a little bit more. Again, it's going to be primarily the people that decide when the shutdown ends, not the government, regardless of what the government does. They, they like to think of themselves as holding on to the levers of power, and when they say shut down, everybody shuts down, and when they push it back up, it automatically goes back up. That's simply not the way it works in America. The people largely are going to decide exactly when they are going out and when they are not, and that is going to be the primary determining factor. But because KIV announced that we're going to start opening it up a little bit more, then the people are probably going to see that as a tripwire and start following suit. So that being said, I think that by about this time next week, maybe a little bit later, you're going to see a significant uptick. Again, not a giant spike, but one that's noticeable. So that being said, let's go ahead and look at this next one, which is new corona cases. Now, I want you to notice that these are two consecutive weekdays, not weekends, because that does make a difference when we're counting these kinds of things, and you can see that in the data. Uh, these are new cases in the state of Alabama, and you can see these two consecutive weekdays of decline. That's a big deal, because we're not seeing a weekend decline, which can be chalked up to the fact that it's the weekend we're actually seeing a decline in the overall test for two consecutive days, and both of these days have been under the average. Because three days ago, you could chalk that one up to the weekend, it being, it being Monday, and you could also just chalk it up to it being an outlier because you had a, a lot of cases the day before and then uh, not so many cases afterward. And then you saw an uptick, but still one that is underneath the average, because as Dr. Scott Harris was saying the other day at the press conference, we're floating around 200-ish new cases a day. And yesterday we had 188, today we had 155. So we're seeing a gradual downturn, and we need 14 days for us to fit into the, the government guideline of when phase two should happen. That's Again, a guideline, not necessarily a mandate or an edict or something that carries the force of law, but they're saying 14 days of steady, continuous decline. I tend to think that's not going to happen because, like I said, people are going to start moving around a little bit more, and you're going to see a higher rate of new cases. That's my prediction, but that may well be what comes to pass. But I think that this is less because we're getting less people sick and more because we are seeing a significant decline in testing. And exhibit A here is the rate of testing that we're having. These are new tests in the state of Alabama. You'll notice that our test over the past three days, and three days is when we saw that sharp decline in new cases, you're also seeing a sharp decline in new testing. Now, testing lags a little bit, so it's not a perfect it's not a perfect uh, mirror for ex for what's going on here and what we're seeing in real time. Granted, the lag isn't nearly as long as it used to be when this whole thing started, but you'll notice that there was a increase in testing today and an increasing in testing yesterday from the day before, but it's still lower than 
what we were accustomed to up until today. Today it finally got into what we would see as kind of the normal levels of testing, at least the ones that we've seen over the past few weeks. And so we're back to, to testing roughly at the rate that we were before, which, I mean, is, is a good sign. But since we're back to testing about the levels that we normally did, I suspect that what you're going to see is results that more similarly reflect what we were seeing beforehand. In other words, you're going to see testing roughly around the 200 to 250 mark. That's going to be about where we start leveling off. And I think the fact that testing rates are are getting back to the levels that we were accustomed to probably is going to lead to that. And it also means that probably what's happening and the reason for that is that Alabama is getting the testing material that it needs. There was a hiccup in the supply chain a little bit earlier. And so it looks like we are starting to get back to being able to test the people that are wanting to be tested. And the the big statistic here that I want to point to is the coronavirus deaths. And these are, of course, new deaths per day. And you'll notice that we had that really big spike a week ago and we're still having a bit of a spike after the weekend, but not to the level that I was predicting. So I'm really thrilled to be wrong on this one. And also that it's getting to be about roughly where we were expecting it from earlier. So this is a return to what we had been seeing beforehand. We kind of had a rough week last week, but this week has been, and, and by that I don't mean the actual week, Sunday through Saturday, I mean just a seven day period. If you're looking at the seven day period that we're doing a lot better this week than we were last week, we're starting to return to what was sort of typical beforehand, because if you're looking at the deaths, A, that is not a result of testing. This is a lagging statistic because coronavirus deaths, what we're looking at are cases that probably started like a week to two weeks ago. And so because of that, you can't really chalk a lack of testing up to the, the fact that we're having less people die of COVID-19. That doesn't make sense, which means that what we're looking at here and, and what we're seeing are the end result of confirmed cases that happened roughly a week or two weeks ago. And so that means that the fact that we're seeing this decline cannot be chalked up to testing, which is a very good sign. It means independent of the fact that we didn't have great testing earlier this week, we're still seeing a decline in deaths, which means that that's probably something that's indicative of what is to come. And it's very encouraging, too, because like I said, last week was a rough week. If you're looking at the average of the past seven days, the average is about 10 deaths per day. If you're looking at the uh, past seven days before that, in other words, the seven-day period before the most recent seven-day period, we had two days of over 30, and we averaged 15 over the previous week. So that's a pretty big improvement. We went from averaging 15 deaths a day this week, uh, that is down from 15 deaths a day the week prior, and having two consecutive days that broke records at 30 and 34, the, the only two days that we've had in the 30s. So this is a really big improvement, and I can kind of see why there are people that are saying, uh, even, again, taking out the legal aspect of it, are saying, okay, it looks like we're getting to, to the point to where we can be a little bit more secure, continue to be cautious, take common sense measures, but it looks like we're starting to get things under control. So that being said, I, I do 
see a, a pretty clear light at the end of the tunnel here. And I think that that's something that the people of Alabama should be commended on. It seems as though we've got this thing not necessarily wrapped up and we don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm not suggesting everybody just go out and, you know, have a big mosh pit. That would be dumb. But what I'm saying is there is a good case to be made that we're starting to see the other end of this thing. We're we're starting on a downward trajectory. This thing is going to start to go downhill from here. Now, it's going to get worse in the sense that we're probably going to see an increase in deaths and cases, but that was always expected to happen regardless of where you were after the shutdown measures started to subside. That was an inevitability. What we were planning on doing is staving that off as long as possible to try to make sure that our medical facilities were prepared for it. And we've basically done that now, which means that if we start opening things up and we start moving around a little bit more than we were, we're starting to get back to normal life. And who knows exactly how long it'll take to get back to completely normal where nobody even thinks about wearing a mask or thinks twice about going to a football game or something like that. That's hard to say right now. But it looks as though we are starting to see the other end of this thing. Now, real quickly before we go, because I I did like to, and I haven't been able to do it much recently because of everything that's been going on with this virus. Wednesdays have typically been a day where I get to talk directly to the audience about something slightly of a, a more spiritual nature, which makes sense because Wednesday is Wednesday night Bible study. I have less time, and because of that, I, I like to sort of hit at something sort of at the heart of the matter, something that really relates to a Christian worldview versus a secular worldview. And this is one that has been really a, a topic of discussion many times, but we haven't addressed it directly. We've sort of talked about some of the outcroppings of it rather than the root. And that is this idea of science versus scientism. Because a lot of times people on the right and Christians, sometimes collectively, sometimes as two separate groups, often get accused of being anti-science. And the problem with that is there are some people that legitimately look at science objectively see it for what it is, and use it in the way that it is properly supposed to be used. There are also some people that worship science as though it is a deity. They wouldn't actually say it that way, but they treat it as though it is the answer to all of life's problems. I'm a big fan of science. I have a Bachelor of Science from Auburn University. I specifically majored in ag communication as opposed to communication so that I would have to take harder maths and harder sciences. That's part of the reason that I chose my degree is so that I didn't just have the communication side of it. I had that background in life sciences, biology, uh, soil management, all of those things. And so I am somebody that, that does revere science and sees it as something that is very useful. And that makes sense, especially right now where everybody is actually talking about science, talking about uh, epidemiology and medical science. And I think it's really cool that the people that normally wouldn't be interested in this stuff or wouldn't take the time to look into this stuff are actually studying biology and studying some of the new medical breakthroughs that are coming out. And and I'm in that crowd. I wouldn't normally look up that kind of news, and, and it's not something that I normally cover here, but I've had a little bit more time to do that because of what all is going on and because it's something that is more at the forefront of everybody's mind. And so the fact that there are people that are paying more attention to science that is a really good thing. 
Unfortunately, there is a secondary school of thought that has sort of spread around, much like a virus, and that is scientism. Scientism basically worships at the altar of science, and many times what it manifests itself in is science as long as it confirms my pre-existing belief. That's the issue that you run into. For example, a lot of people will cite Darwin and talk about him like he's a hero, and Darwin did have some significant contributions to the field of biology. But even people that are hardcore evolutionist and atheist believe that Darwin, a lot, most of the theories presented in Origin of Species are actually incorrect. And that's not necessarily because Dar Darwin was a crappy scientist. It's more because new information has come out. And, and just like most scientists, the longer time goes on and the longer science progresses and the more information we get about the universe, the less relevant their stuff becomes. And yet there are people that constantly talk about Darwin as though he is some mythological feature in their own religion, which is the worship of science. That's where it becomes a problem. That's where it becomes toxic. Similarly, there are people that will disregard any science that somehow comes against their belief or, or their, their core values, they automatically dismiss that as not science or pseudoscience or somebody that just had an axe to grind. Now, sometimes bad science does come out where somebody really did have an axe to grind, somebody was cooking the books. That happens too. I understand that. But you can't just dismiss everything that goes against what you already believed as being pseudoscience. That's not the way that this works, and that's not the way that science works. I don't know how many people I've had that, for example, are all about the gay agenda that when you present social science studies that have been done, for example, on the effects of gay parents on children, and the vast majority of that body of work comes back that there are severe problems that come with gay parents parenting a child much in the same way that they have the same issue with single-parent households. And if they see that, they just automatically dismiss it. That's the problem with scientism. You hold science up to be something that it isn't. Science is not a magic MacGuffin that solves all of humanity's problems. It's very important. I wish more people paid more attention to it. But ultimately, science is not God. And that's the problem that comes into the worldview aspect of what we're going to be talking about today. The issue is, every human being has a God. Every single one, regardless of how much they may claim that they're an atheist or agnostic or whatever... Every single person has a God because every single person has a God-shaped hole in their life and only God can fill it. And the problem with that is, if you don't have God there to fill it, you will start filling it with whatever you can get your hands on. And because science is something that does solve a lot of problems, science is something that can answer a lot of the mysteries of the universe, a lot of people look to that and basically make science into their god. And the irony is the people that are adherents to scientism are much like irrational Christians. Ones that are zealous to the point that they don't question things, they just assume certain things are right. And ironically, those are typically the people that sort of reflect those same people in the Christian community. Ones that basically look a lot more to preachers and what people have said about the Bible as opposed to what the Bible actually says. 
people that are engaged in scientism kind of do the same thing. They cling on to scientists and what scientists have said about science as opposed to actually doing their own research, looking at people that disagree with their favorite scientists and people that have different theories, which is really the core of science, isn't it? Questioning things, forming a hypothesis, coming up with counterarguments to see if those beliefs tend to pan out. And there's another feature of irrational Christians that sort of have a blind faith that also applies to people in the scientism camp. And that belief, I believe, is they not only have that sort of irrational blind faith in people as opposed to the actual entity itself, in in the Christian's case, the Bible, in the scientism person's case, uh, science itself, and and, uh, instead just sort of clinging on to fads and, and scientists that become popular. Another feature that they kind of share is that they... Uh, not only have that sort of zealous core that they have that kind of blind faith, but what they also tend to do is they also tend to be the ones that know the least about it, ironically. That the ones that have the most faith in science are the ones that understand the least about it. Because an actual scientist, regardless of his religious beliefs, An honest one is going to tell you all the things that science can answer. They understand that there are certain things that science just does not have an answer for, not because the science is bad, but because it is outside of science's purview. And by the way, when it comes to religion, religion's not going to solve all of your life problems either and never claims to, just like science doesn't. And there are certain things that are outside of even religion's purview. For example, God is very concerned with my life. He is very concerned with the choices I make in my life. I don't think God worries about whether or not I decide to go with a chocolate fudge Pop-Tart or a strawberry Pop-Tart for my breakfast. That is not something that God is concerned with. And there is not a religious answer from any religious text that would inform me on which decision I should make there. There are certain things that exist outside of that. It's true that every aspect of my life and the decisions that I make and and the person that I am, every bit of that is shaped overall by my religion. But ultimately, I make probably dozens, if not hundreds, of completely a-religious or a-moral decisions every single day. It is all-encompassing, but it doesn't determine every single aspect of who I am. And science shouldn't either. Ultimately, when we are searching ourselves and we are looking for answers, let us look to something that actually professes and actually does have all the answers. Put our faith in God, who does have all the answers, and and something that is, you know, designed to, from the very onset, be something that fills the void in our life. Because if I have to pick between a personal God that created me for a reason and loves me and wants what's best for me and looks out for me versus just an impersonal universe that really I'm just a cluster of atoms and I'm no different or more important than the rock, obviously I'm going to go with the one that gives my life meaning and purpose. And by the way, that's what I want to be true but it's also what logic and even science leads me to. You see, 
one thing that I think is an interesting departure on all of this is there was a time where the vast majority of scientists, and there's a lot of scientists that still do this today, but the vast majority of scientists, the reason that they wanted to discover more about the universe was specifically because they thought it would be a service to God. That's how they saw it. Sir Isaac Newton is a great example. I mean, uh, you look at uh, Mendel or any of the other great thinkers really up until about the modern era. All of them were Christians, and they kind of saw their duty to discover more about the universe. It all went back to their duty to God. They saw it as service to him to learn more about his universe. And for the longest time, not only science, but education in general was pretty much exclusively facilitated by churches and religious organizations that followed the Bible. And so, even though religion is usually pitted as an antithesis to science, or like they're somehow in competition, the truth is, real actual science can, and very often does, work in synchronization with and alongside religion. Now, I don't think you need to blend the two because that causes all kinds of other issues as well. But ultimately, they do work in concert. Most of the people that adhere to scientism, that's blasphemy to them because, again, science is their religion. And because of that, they would see that as a, as a clashing belief, but it's really not. All right, so I got to get out of here because Bible class is about to start. I appreciate your time this evening. If you do want some more content, if you uh, want some good Bible study to go to yourself, because I know a lot of you are quarantined right now and can't go out, can't go to your weekly Bible study, I would encourage you to check out the YouTube channel for the Dirated Church of Christ. You can go there and see that they've got a Bible study tonight. I believe Doug said he was going to be preaching on lot this, this evening. Uh, there are plenty of other great Bible studies that you can look at there, uh, Billy Camp, Jeremy Pate, and you can also check out any of my stuff on the Tactics YouTube channel. All of my chaplain's reports are there. If you're interested in those doing a Bible study with them, they usually last anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes, so be sure to look at those resources as well. Appreciate it. In the meantime, stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.